You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, friends. Uh, nice seeing you guys here this morning. Uh, we'd love for you to turn in uh, your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as we continue in our series on Romans. We will be looking at the verses that we read at the beginning of the service, verses 15 through 23. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. As you're turning there, I was thinking this week, I don't know if there's anything more appalling to our sensibilities than the idea of slavery. Um, Just feel like we all kind of, to a man, to a woman, have a visceral reaction to the concept. So whether that's um, less than, what, 200 years ago, the fact that there was um, a modern um, day American slave trade right here in Texas uh, and all throughout um, our country, and, uh, and then, you know, kind of even looking forward, like part of the reason why we as Christians should celebrate Martin Luther King um, is one, that he and the prophets around him spoke such a compelling biblical word um, against the vestiges of slavery. And so we celebrate the progress therein. But we also kind of see it as a signpost to days that have in some sense gotten better, but are not yet better days because of the racial injustice that still exists in our country. And so we celebrate it in the hope that um, a more just society would be at hand, even a more just society before um, the Lord comes back. But um, it's important that we think about that. But it's crazy that like that's not the only containing conversation with slavery. So like we're at Hedgeway in Walnut Hill. And if you were to go to Walnut Hill and take a right, about two and a half miles down past Harry Hines, which is historically the seediest area of Dallas, you uh, would have found in the fall of 2019, um, just a couple weeks before the tornado hit us, that um, Robert Wolonsky of the Dallas Morning News wrote an article about a bust, um, a bust on a parlor where women were being trafficked, women being brought in from all over the world and trafficked and sold um, as sexual slaves to uh, to people in our city, two and a half miles down. In his article, you should read it, just talks about the conditions of their slavery and it's sickening. And so I think one thing of all the things that divide us, one thing that unites us uniquely in this room across the board is that we abhor the idea of slavery. We reject it. We rightly reject it. But here's kind of an interesting paradox, okay? To reject something, especially something that we should reject doesn't mean that we actually escape from that thing. So that we should like prize freedom, that's a good thing, but prize freedom recognizing that we're actually, in the point of this passage will teach us, we're actually still enslaved. So you're going, hang on, that's a pair. Are you saying that I should reject the very thing that you're saying that I am? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And uh, I'm not just the one saying it, the Apostle Paul We'll say it, uh, really, the point of this passage, like as we work through the book of Romans, the point of this passage has really just, or of the book so far, the book in general has just been, what, what does the grace of Jesus Christ revealed mean to me? And now we're getting into a really practical part of that, which is so helpful. And I think in this passage, what we're going to see is that the grace revealed to us should compel us further to subjection to God, which brings wholeness and further away from our old enslavement to sin, which brings death. And so that the point of this passage is that subjection to God brings wholeness, 
um, falling back into our old patterns of slavery bring death, but either way, we're still enslaved to something. That's kind of where we're going this morning. And so we'll start in verse 15, where Paul says, what then are we to sin because we are no because we're not under law, but under grace, by no means. Okay, this is the same argument that he's made at the beginning of chapter six, um, using a word, I have forgotten a lot of stuff from seminary, but I actually remember this word, meganointa. It is the most emphatic way in Greek that you can say no. And so in 6.1, Paul's answering the question, well, because uh, we are now under grace, should we continue to sin? And he's like, absolutely not. And the reason why is because you died. And he's like, so everything that Christ experienced on the cross, you experienced vicariously, including his God forsakenness. Like you actually experienced the horrors of his death by faith. So why in the world would you act as if you're not dead? You're dead to sin. You're not alive to it. But he's going to take a similar argument here, and he's actually going to apply it to the concept of mastery. Like, who is our new master is kind of the the question that he's answering. And so again, the question is, are we to continue to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? He says, no, like absolutely not. It's emphatic. It's kind of the way uh, Michael Scott reacts in the office when he finds out that uh, Toby's back from Costa Rica, okay? I mean, it really is just like an emphatic, like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm going to answer that question with a no. Like, you, you just, you, you don't get it. You don't get it. If that's your line of thought, you don't get it. And then he gives the explanation in verse 16. That's not how it works. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Here's what Paul's saying. This is really important. That every one of us, we can't get around this, every one of us will present ourselves to something or someone in order to gain something from that person and to give of ourselves to that thing. We will, in a sense, obey the power of that thing. Really what he's saying practically is just because you're a Christian and you're saved from sin does not mean that you're free from a master. This is the point that he's driving all throughout the passage. There are two masters, all of whom humanity serves. Verse 16, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. Verses 17 and 18, you're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Verses 20 and 20 uh, through 22, you're either a slave to sin or you are a slave to God. And really the outcome here is going to land with two entirely different trajectories. So he's saying, if you wanna live outside of these good boundaries that God created for you, then that's going to be sin leading to death. And if you want to live under the subjection of the boundary of the good God, that the good God created for you, then that is actually obedience that will lead to righteousness. And there are two different trajectories that Paul is highlighting here. And you go, okay, dude, that sounds great. Sounds a little archaic. Sounds a little ancient. Like, really, is that still the way we operate? And um, I would argue emphatically, yes. It is very much the, I would argue, uh, I don't know if it's ever been more clear to me in 2021 that we're actually worshipers of something that we can't not worship. That's part of our DNA Um, I believe every one of us in this room, um, because the Bible seems to say that it's true, that all of us in this room long for connection and the experience of intimacy. Like we're always motivated, always. We are always motivated. Worship is inevitable. Like we have active hearts and our active hearts every day are searching 
all the time for significance, for meaning, for value, for validation. That's part of who we are by design because we were created by an infinite God and by design, he created us for hearts that would be full in him. But how does that worship look real time? It starts by answering the question, what do you want? Like, what are you motivated by? Like if you're mastered by needing people to like you all the time, then you're actually enslaved to, appro- to approval. And being enslaved to approval means that you will experience self-pity, envy, hurt feelings, and inadequacy all of the time. Maybe you are mastered by the perception of success. Well, then you're enslaved to the perception of success and you will experience drivenness, fatigue, worry, and fear. Maybe you're um, mastered by a vision of a healthy marriage or family. Maybe that's a spouse that you don't yet have. Maybe that is a spouse that you have with children. You can be anywhere on the spectrum. Singles aren't the only ones that struggle with that, by the way. But you're, you're, um, you're mastered by this vision and what you'll experience, what you'll be enslaved to if you don't have it is jealousy, control, bitterness, and frustration when things don't look the way you want them to. We can't not worship. That's my point. Like we can't not give our hearts to something. We can't not be mastered by something. Jesus will say as much, in Matthew 6, 11, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And if you want to kind of take a shortcut to what those things might be, then just consider your daydreams and your nightmares. When nobody else is around, what are you thinking about? And then what are the most terrifying thoughts to you? What are the things that keep you up at night? That's gonna drive us into questions of who we are worshiping. And who are we are worshiping other than God? is going to promise us the moon with its allure. We all know that. But it can't deliver. It will not deliver its promises because our hearts were made for God. And so again, Paul is outlining that there is sin that leads to death and there is obedience that leads to righteousness. And these are two different trajectories. Something will master us and, not but, and there's actually really good news. Verse 17 says this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. To say that another way, because of the gospel, for those of us who are in Christ, our mastery actually changed. There's something going on in verse 17 that's fascinating in the Greek, and you won't catch it, but at the very end of the sentence, it says, the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And the idea there to which you, com- you were committed, I don't think it comes across here in the English, but in the Greek, it's passive. And anytime you see a passive verb, even a past tense verb, a passive verb in the Greek means that something was acted upon. The subject was acted upon. To say it another way, we were subject to a formal imparting of authoritative teaching. Let me make it more simple. Somebody came in and made something happen for us. We didn't stumble into Christianity. Christianity actually came for us by the grace of God, initiating and awakening our hearts. And Paul is driving that point home through this passage. And what it led to, God swooping in, was obedience from the heart. And this is why conversion, the idea of conversion, really is at the heart of Christianity. It's important Because before this moment for us, God loved us and God loves the world now. And if you're not a Christian, God loves you. 
my goodness, we can say that unequivocally, ad infant, like it is, God loves the world, no question about it. But Romans 5.10, what we've already walked through, taught us that prior to our conversion to faith, we were actually God's enemy. But we weren't um, enemies uh, of sin, Satan, and the world. They were not our enemies. They were actually our friends. And uh, Shay outlined this, I think, rather well with his drawing. We all gave him mad props for his little drawing last week. Uh, where he showed us the difference between sin country and Graceland. So refer back to that if you need a little bit more clarity. But something crazy happens at the moment of conversion. And what's, what, what's crazy is like what master or who masters us changed. Like our allegiance and our motivation actually changed when God showed up. When Jesus showed up, this new Lord appears and he says, I'm not gonna stand for your slavery to sin anymore. And at the cost of his own life, what does he do? He claims us for his own. And if you are a Christian, your allegiance and your motivation changed at some point. It had to. It had to have changed. Um, because true conversion at the end of the day is not like some moral quest for self-actualization, right? As helpful as like the Enneagram is, okay, I'm a two, been really helpful for me to figure out some stuff about me and how I relate to you and why I am a certain way. You know, so if you're five or six or seven books into the Enneagram, God help you in learning that and then helping me understand what you're learning. But all of your Enneagrams, all of your podcasts, all of our self-help books, everything that's on the top 10 at Amazon, all of those things can do nothing, absolutely nothing to make a slave to sin a slave to righteousness. They're actually really limited. They're deficient. They can help us understand some things, our humanity. They cannot make a dead heart come alive. Only God can do that. And so it's good for us to know the limitations of what we're taking in as opposed to the gospel that has actually made us altogether different to the glory of God. And that's what Paul is point, pointing out. Um, the other thing too is we have to be careful with like dramatic conversions, right? Like, I mean, and let me say that differently. All conversions are dramatic. Um, and some of us actually have like the journal page, right? It was a moment in time. I was down in the dumps. It was my last semester at AM. I was right about to graduate. And I went to breakaway for the first time. And I remember just stumbling in there, a slave to sin. And then, you know, Ben Stewart said something. And then my hands just went up in the air and I became a Christian, right? It's amazing if that's your story. Um, some people have a memory like that. Some people, you know, grew up in the church and it's actually more of like a season of time. And that's okay too. It's maybe a moment you remember or a season of time. Maybe it was like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis vividly remembers going on a walk with Tolkien at the zoo. How cool would it have been to have been there? And then leaving, believing something entirely different about God. There's all different kinds of examples of how people come to faith, but the important thing is that it happened. The important thing is that we saw and heard a teaching. Our heart became warm to that teaching and we became committed and obedient to that teaching. That is what a Christian makes. That is what a Christian makes. So what actually happens as a result of God's action, that's verse 18, and we should read that now. Um, and having been set free from sin, we have now become slaves of righteousness. So what Paul is saying is that it culminated in freedom from sin and slavery to God. Again, there's that paradox. But it really begs the question, like, how exhausting is sin? Like, can I get a, yeah, 
Just me? Okay. Well, pray for me then. Um, like sin is an excruciating master. You know that, right? And I think Tolkien, um, I'm on, a, I guess, a Tolkien kick today, so bear with me. But um, he, uh, gosh, he, 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 and I don't know if I've seen this better anywhere else than the character of Smeagol in The Lord of the Rings. And whether you read the, the, read the book or you saw the movies, Peter Jackson's version, it does it well. Because Smeagol, he's this sweet little guy. He's a little hobbit. He's a different kind of hobbit than Frodo, but he's just a little hobbit. And he's hanging out with his cousin, and they're just hanging out. And Smeagol's this, he's this golden retriever. He's this puppy dog. And his cousin fishes, I don't know if you remember, he cast his line and this fish takes him down and his cousin comes out and what does he find in, in the lake? He finds the ring. And his cousin is immediately allured to the ring and then Smeagol sees it and he goes, wow, I want that. I'm not doing the voice for y'all. Sorry, I'm not gonna do Smeagol's voice. People will manipulate that. Um, but he, he sees it and he's enticed by it. And then what does he do? He says, let me see it, let me see it. And his cousin won't share. And then he starts to self-justify. What does he say? He says, it's my birthday. It's my birthday. Let me see it. I deserve it. I deserve that. And then what does he do? Well, his cousin won't give it to him. And Smeagol, this sweet little innocent guy, kills his cousin. It's Cain and Abel. Kills his cousin, chokes him out takes the ring from him, and for hundreds of years becomes obsessed by it. What does the ring do? Well, it isolates him. But really what it does to him is what Smeagol can hardly notice. And that's Smeagol, this kind of okay-looking human or hobbit, turns into this creature that's just vile. And the point of it is the allure of the ring, the mastery of the ring, is ultimately not to help him, but to hurt him. And you see this kind of decreation, if you will, take place as Smeagol becomes Gollum, ultimately dealing with his conversations he's always having in his head alone until he ultimately dies, Mount Doom, at the end of the story, chasing the only thing that consumed his mind. And that sin, sin is an excruciating master. And that's why as slaves of righteousness, it's critical that we actually have to unlearn some things. And Shay talked about this last week, um, that our old master has no authority anymore, but he does still have influence. He doesn't have authority, but he has influence. And it is still the default mode for many of us to yield to the influence of the old master. And that's why even our understanding of how we approach this master has to change because we do not approach this master understanding first what he's asking of us. We approach this master understanding what he's already done on our behalf, which is fundamentally different. And does he, Jesus, expect holiness? Of course he does. He expects that we share in his holiness, but not without first burning into our hearts the grace that he lavishes upon us. There is no bait and switch with him. And, the, and, the, and the, the hymnist was right. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. He is not a transactional master. He is not an overlord. His relationship is not based on performance. He does not come with shame and guilt, but blessing and affirmation and love. What kind, of, what kind of master is he? Well, he initiates at our worst and he predicates the entire relationship based on relentless mercy that will never go away. 
And this is why, like, even our view of love in relationship, like our view of love, especially our old man view of love is very transactional. But his view of love is covenantal and eternal. And Dane Ortland, who wrote this book, Gentle and Lowly, which is by far the best book I've read in a long time, says this. In contrast, he says that we love until we are betrayed, but Jesus continues to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken and Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love to a limit and Jesus loves to the end. You know what his deepest heart is for us? You know the thing that he wants for for us, for you, for me, more than anything else in this master-servant relationship? His deepest heart is that we would understand grace. And you know what grieves him the most? When we don't understand grace. Because he loves us. He loves us. And so Paul says, there's two paths for us. There's the path towards obedience and subjection, which brings wholeness, or our old enslavement to sin, which brings death. And then Paul gets so practical, and this is important. When brilliant people like Paul get practical, it's always helpful because I would love his quiet time and I would love to see the third heaven. I've never seen it before, but Paul has. And Paul who has seen that tells us something that I love. I'll just go ahead and cheat. He says this in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Thanks, Paul. We get it, right? (laughs) But he says this, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I own that. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Again, Paul's saying, let me break this down for you. He's like, okay, think about what you used to do. Think about what you used to be. Remember, okay, don't dwell. Don't go back too far in the details, okay? That's forgiven. That's past tense, okay? So don't live there, but remember what life was like before Christ. And what he's saying pre-conversion, just remember what you were like, okay? Remember kind of the energy and the passion and the force of your life that you used to present your members as slaves to impurity, and that was lawlessness that led to more lawlessness. And what he's now saying is with the same energy, passion, and premeditation, actually pursue God. Um, I have a friend who is a lawyer, um, and he's a successful lawyer, young guy, good-looking guy, tall. Um, I don't know why that matters. I guess it matters to me. But uh, he, you know, he's just a guy where you know and his wife's beautiful too, and he he just looks like he could probably be the governor one day. And uh, I asked him, I'm like, dude, when are you getting into politics? He's like, never. I was like, why? He goes, too much baggage, dude. He's like, I don't want my old stuff coming up, coming out. He's like, I got no no desire. He's like, I'll just stay in this lane and. Hope no, nobody brings up my past. And uh, some of y'all, like your conversion, that resonates. You're like, yep, me, I was there, right? I, I, I get it. And then some of us have what we like to communicate as like non-dramatic conversion stories, as if there was, as if there was such a thing as that, right? Like for me, like, okay, so maybe I wasn't the guy you know, getting loaded the night before a game and showing up to Kyle Field Blitz. But I I certainly was the guy who uh, thought I was better than all of the other Christians who didn't do that, right? Like I had a pride complex, a holier-than-thou complex, 
And when I dug into the scriptures, I realized that God had more to say to me as a Pharisee than other people. And that's stuff I still wrestle with, right? And so what Paul's saying here is like, every time you murdered in your heart, every time you coveted, every time you tried to control an outcome, which is all of us, every time we tried to be God with a lot of zeal and force and passion, pre-conversion, Paul says, channel that energy, transfer it, and pursue God therein. Basically, like the most non-compelling, the, the most uncompelling Christian is a Christian that has like this wild past and then now they're just this morally neutral bump on a log. Like Paul's saying, with the same zeal and passion of your former life, now pursue God as a slave to righteousness. And righteousness leading to sanctification. Because all of us, like I know you, I know what you're looking for, whether you know it or not, you're looking for wholeness and so am I. And that's what, sanctification is, and it's wholeness amidst the fact that we're still struggling with the influence of the old master. So what Paul's saying, he's saying, take the grace of God initiated to you and submit yourself to the surrender, the glad surrender, and the boundaries that God has created, and trust him even when it's hard. Because the thing about grace, like justification, we believe with confidence, is this um, it's this one-way thing where God looks at you and he just says, live, wake up, come to life. But you don't see that with sanctification. Sanctification is actually a cooperative process. Sanctification is you and God joining together in the process of your healing and to the degree. Now, does he take the lead? Of course he does. Of course he does. But like there is healing that we will experience and have experienced as a direct result of us submitting ourselves to God's will that we won't experience if we actually don't submit ourselves to God's will. Doesn't mean he doesn't love us, doesn't mean we're not his. But justification is God waking us up and sanctification is let's do this together with God taking the lead. And that's important because sanctification is wholeness. And then Paul's gonna end this passage with the why. Um, Why um, would we subject ourselves to God as opposed uh, to subject ourselves to slavery, which leads to sin and death. This is why we must do it. We'll finish it with verses 20 through 23. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things from which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love verse 20. What he's, this question he's asking is, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's his statement. This is what he's saying. Hey, your old man, like your life before Christ, you were in a manner of speaking free. Like you weren't shackled to God in any way. You weren't a slave to righteousness. You were actually a slave to the world, to your own flesh and to the devil, but you weren't a slave to me, but then he asked this like seminal question that burns deep into our hearts. What was the fruit? He's like, what was the fruit? This is his question. Like apart from God, tell me how whole and healed and free and fruitful you were. Tell me about it. I'd love to hear. What he says is the reality of our former lives is that we're ashamed. And we're ashamed of the vestiges at times that still carry us into this new life. Amen. And Paul's saying, don't you remember, like, don't you remember how, like, less than those, like, don't you remember that the end of those things, and and it's interesting because he's actually making an argument to say, 
that by virtue of the fact that we have a new master, it's actually illogical to go back to our old life because we have the authority and the influence of a new master who wants to take us somewhere far better, far away from lesser things into healthy things. And he's asking us, like, don't you, don't you even remember? Don't you even remember how bad that fruit tasted? And this made me think about, as it relates to just death, sin as death and deconstruction and where that takes us. It reminded me of in um, C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. Um, it's an allegory. C.S. Lewis takes some liberties, but um, it's an allegory about, for those of us who are in Christ, how earth is becoming gradually more like heaven. And then those of us who are apart from the Lord, it's actually becoming more like hell. And he takes this figure, this Napoleon figure, um, Napoleon type, and uh, you know somebody who had wild success like he did and uh, you know, was, uh, was a, a, a firm ruler, even a harsh ruler. And um, he, he kind of channels this part of the earth where Napoleon now is. And um, what he describes, it's very eerie how he describes this part of earth. And he starts to say that houses are miles and miles and miles apart from each other. Well, why is that? Because sin isolates if you, it, it, the enemy isolates and attacks sin isolates. And so what he found, it took him a long way to get there was, was Napoleon and he was in a house and he was isolated. And uh, if you know anything about history, Napoleon had a dramatic rise and a dramatic fall. He, uh, he didn't anticipate um, the power of the Russians and uh, he had a dramatic fall and uh, kind of walked in shame as a result of that for the rest of his life. And so they find Napoleon in the book, and this is what it says about Napoleon. That walking up and down, up and down all the time, left, right, left, right, he never stopped for a moment. And these two chaps watched him for about a year, and he never rested. And he muttered to himself all the time, it was Salt's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. Like that all the time, never stopped for a moment. A little fat man, and he looked kind of tired, but he didn't seem able to stop it. You see what he's saying? Like sin leads to death and death is not you just at the end of your life in the ground. Death is destruction. It's decreation. It's life without God. It's life given entirely to the loneliness of your own thoughts. It's a perpetual conversation in your head where you let nobody else in. It's what Gollum does all throughout. He's just having a conversation with himself. This is death. What does sin do? It'll isolate you. It'll harden you. It'll consume you. It'll destroy you. It will make you miserable. And what is Paul saying? Don't you remember that? Don't you remember what that old life tasted like? So when you're tempted to go back there, remember what it was like. Remember what that fruit tasted like. In contrast with verses 22 and 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and end its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the master. Here's Again, here's the, the, the side by side, the master who sees it through and then the master who doesn't see it through. What about the master that sees it through? Jesus sets us free from sin by becoming the curse of sin. How compelling is that? 
So God has put us in subjection to him. Why? To create boundaries that bring life and for us to trust him when that obedience is hard. Because the promise of his obedience is what? The promise of, his, of obedience to him, sanctification, is fruit, good fruit that leads to eternal life. It's the wholeness and the healing that like when you see sanctification, see wholeness and healing. That's what we mean as opposed to the master that doesn't see it through. And what, what will we know about like his allure will be great. The most compelling thing about him will be, or it will be the checks that he cannot cash. His allure will be great, but his promises will be empty and his words will be hollow. And the only thing that will get paid from his currency of sin is death. And Paul is saying to give in to him is actually, to give him any attention is actually illogical because he's not our master anymore. And he doesn't have authority and he has waning influence by the power of God, which is great news. But why in the world is this so hard to believe as we wrap up? Why is this so hard to believe? Why is it so hard to put into practice? Why is it hard to not yield more to the influence of the new master? There's a lot of reasons, and one I can think of by way of example is Juneteenth, um, which we celebrate June 19th, um, started, initiated June 19th, 1865, was when slaves in Texas finally heard of their freedom. You know, Abraham Lincoln had um, given the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22nd, 1862, but word just had not traveled here yet. And so there were a lot of slaves in Texas who needed to know that they were free. They actually needed to know the announcement. And I think that parallels well, because if you are not in Christ, then you still are a slave to sin. And what you need to hear from me and from us is that you can be set free because of Jesus Christ. But what's more is that there are actually worse slaves. We know this through history there were plenty of slaves who, once they found out they were freed, didn't act as if they were free. And you know why that is? It's because the pain that we endure in a former life and all of our prior enslavements can have a dramatic influence on the next life. That stuff is real. And so what do we do? Well, we settle into the fact that we're gonna remain a slave to something. It's inevitable. And we train our hearts to hear the voice of a master who starts not with you must do for him, but what he has already done for you. His voice is trustworthy, my friends. And the wholeness you're looking for, that I'm looking for, is to further subject ourselves to his care. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the way that it speaks to us. We ask, Lord, that um, where there are areas where we have just yielded more to the old man and the old way, to our old master, Lord, that you, by your grace, would allow us even now to acknowledge those things, repent of those things, and to run to a master who willingly receives and embraces us, whose grace is, whose currency is grace who wants more than anything else to know that we are loved. And so strengthen us, Lord, to grow and to be sanctified and to be whole and to get further away from what we once were. Thank you that you can do this by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.